0: I believe, to God's Word, and that's what we're going to focus on here for the next few minutes. I'm Greg Walters, one of the elders here, and it's a joy to read these words to you. They're kind of tough at times, but uh, words from the lips of Jesus, so we ought to pay special attention. From Luke 11, chapter 29, verse 54, please turn in your Bibles and your electronic devices, whatever you have, but it's important to read along here. There's so much. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people! Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you, experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did, Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose them fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. God bless his word.
1: Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. So, it's kind of a heavy passage. There's a lot of woe in there. Um, So if you, if you go back and you read through this chapter again in your devotions this week in sections, you'll, you'll start at the beginning of chapter 11 again. And one of the things to pay attention to is read the whole chapter and write down everything positive Jesus says in the whole chapter. And what you're going to find is some pretty amazing stuff. He starts right off with saying, and this was cataclysmic in the history of the entire world. We Christians take it for granted. He says, refer to God as your father. When you pray, say father in heaven. I don't know of anywhere in the entire history of human religion where, where that is said quite that way. Right? And then that you can pray prayers about being part of God's kingdom. And that we can be a part of that and that God's kingdom will enter into the world and that you, you can agree with him that you want things done the way he would want and that you would be part of that and that there's this union between you and that. And then it says that fathers, if if you're a father and you have a kid and the kid says, hey, can I have an egg? You don't give him like a snake or a scorpion, right? You, you, like, you give him an egg or you say no, but you, you want to give good gifts to your kids and you're not you're not as good as God, right? And he says, and then he says, this, so how much more does your father in heaven give the holy spirit to those who ask him? So he sa- so like I mean, think about how cataclysmic just those verses are. He's saying he he starts out by saying God is like you're a father to you. And he he'll give you if you just ask him, he'll give you his own divine presence in the person of his spirit to be with you every moment of your existence until his kingdom has fully come, and you are fully part of his kingdom. Full stop. Right? And for that, Jesus gets attacked in four different ways. Now, there's a point there. It's a really important point. Because, you know what we think? We think that we're nice to God, and God is mean to us. That's what we really think. But over and over again, if you read carefully— God is nice to us, and then we spit in his face. We're just mean back. And so Jesus says these beautiful things about all that God wants to give to us and how generous he wants to be with us. And then the response is the people say ab- about his, his miracle, right? He makes a guy who's never spoken in his life speak. And they say, well, it was, it was by the power of the devil he did that. Right? And then, so that's like, yeah, you're doing good, but you're doing it with evil purpose and through evil means right? And then they try to feign him with praise. Oh, you know, there's the woman who says, blessed are you, and the woman who bore you, and the breasts who nursed you, right? Preachers have to deal with this a lot, because if pastors are doing what they're supposed to do, they really give their heart to the message of their sermon, right? And so then you go out, and people come out afterwards, and there's always people who are like, that was terrible. But there's some people who are like, that was so great. You're so funny, and you're just fantastic. You're so good at preaching, and you're like, okay, just— Do you remember anything I said? Like the message? And it's like a cow staring at a closed gate. It's like, what are you, what are you talking about? Right? It's because that'll happen. Sometimes what'll happen is it's a defense mechanism. Like something will be said to you that you have to grapple with. And what you offer instead of grappling with it is just praise. Right? And so Jesus responds to this woman who basically says, you're a great man, and your mother is great, and this is so great. He goes, no, no, blessed is the person who hears and listens to the word of God and then does it, right? And then you get the third and fourth group, which is raising the cost and facsimile, okay? So Jesus has been doing miracles for at least months. Healing people, releasing people. He's just cured somebody of lifelong muteness. That's a big deal. And the response to that is, give us a sign. We need a sign. Right? In Matthew's gospel, they say a sign from heaven. I've heard um, sort of public atheists sometimes say, you know, if God would just appear in the sky and say, I exist, please behave as though I do, do," they'd be like, that'd be enough, and I'd believe. And and that's kind of a sign from heaven sort of means. It's sort of this self-interpreting bigger than anything, so powerfully self-interpreting that it controls your acceptance of it kind of thing. And Jesus explicitly says, you're not getting it right? And then the second one is facsimile, which is you don't really want to become the thing that you're called to be on the inside, and so you construct an outside that looks like it, even though the inside is nothing like it. Um, One of the people I like who speaks publicly—I'm just going to leave very vague—wrote recently on the on the Hebrew Bible, and he said about the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible focuses only on the external behaviors And so you shouldn't beat yourself up about all the stuff that's going on inside of you. But what what it focuses on is what you do. If you commit adultery, you're an adulterer. It doesn't matter what's going on inside of you, which is a deep misunderstanding, I think, of the Torah, of the Hebrew Bible. But Jesus explicitly refutes that idea. Right? He says, didn't the one who makes the outside make the inside too? If your external actions— belong to God and say something about God and to God, your internal ones do just the same. That's why Christians haven't divided life into two things, your internal life and what you do. There's no sin here, but there could be sin here, but we divide it into three. Right? There is temptation or internal desire. There is what we do with that internally lust, epithumia, the sinful passions that these can turn into. And then the sinful action that it creates. So there's sin outside of you or good outside of you. There could be sin inside of you, and then there's the desire itself. So you can have an attraction, then that can become a lust that's still inside of you. But it's still evil. It's still sinful. Does that make sense? So Christians have always divided the inner life because inside of us we believe we have the image of God, and we also have the flesh. We have this drive to make all the good things wrong for selfish reasons and for reasons that Jesus calls later in this passage, greed, right? Okay. So before we dive into these two objections, I want to take you through a flow chart of why I think Jesus talks about it quite this way. All right? So I'm gonna do this kind of fast because I kind of got behind last hour, okay? So human beings are alike in lots of ways, no matter what race, gender, age, time you even live in. That's why Things that happen in the Bible to people very unlike you can be completely relevant. And two of the things that human beings are always running into is a need for meaning. All human beings ascribe some kind of meaning to their life, and all human beings are uncertain about their future, because you really don't know what's gonna happen. You don't know when you're gonna be sick, or like things aren't gonna work out, or you're gonna get fired, or somebody's gonna stop loving you, or—you just really can't control those things, right? And so every human being is concerned about them. They're concerned about whether or not their life means something, and they know what it means, and they're concerned about what's going to happen to them. Now, what that leads to is, it leads to doubt. What's going to happen to me, right, in the future? Or, or what, if, if you're living your life by a certain meaning, and then something happens to you that you feel like shouldn't, if your life means what you thought it did, right? Something will happen. You'll be like, I believe in a God that's just. And then something happens to you that you feel like is unjust, and you immediately think God shouldn't have allowed that. And so that creates a doubt because you're like, wait, I was functioning on this, and then this happened. And is the meaning I think my life has the meaning it really does have? And human beings can't proceed without believing their life means something. We're just not wired that way. And so it creates doubt, and that uh, doubt creates pain. And we don't want to stay in that place, but there's really only two ways out of that, right? You could either believe that, like, there's something wrong with you, that you haven't thought through something right, you haven't felt your way through something right, that there's some kind of confusion has entered in, that there's something amiss, right? And that's why you're feeling this way. Or… There's something wrong with what God has done, right? Like, God has somehow failed. Like, there's some kind of clarity that you should have had. There's something he should have done to make things clearer. Something he should have done on your behalf that he really hasn't done. And so how do you get out of that? And you see, that's when human beings want a sign. Because we don't normally think that we're the problem. Be- and, and there's two reasons for that. One is sometimes we just We just don't think that way. You know, most of us are just not really drawn to think that we're the problem in any situation, right? But more than that, even if you're humble enough to say, well, maybe I'm the problem, it's very difficult to do an autopsy on your own brain. You know what I mean? Like to, to sort out your own consciousness with your own consciousness it's almost impossible. Like, your mind is an extraordinarily complicated thing. There's all these past beliefs that you've had that have sorted their way in your mind that you've completely forgotten. You don't even know why you feel certain ways about things. You'll do stuff that you don't even know why you did. It's incredibly difficult to sort yourself out, even if you work at it really hard, and most people don't. And so, and so if you try to do that work, if you just try to get inside your own head, it's often more confusing than not, and you can't find what's wrong. And if you find something that's wrong, you'll find something related to that, that you, you felt like you did, that means that God should have done something still. And so you end up turning to God and saying, where are you in all of this? And so you think that maybe God will live up to, you know, fill in his deficiencies if you use prayer and you say, God, there, but you won't say it. You won't say, God, you've done these deficiencies, you, but you'll say something like, I feel like I need some help. I feel like I need some clarity. I feel like I've been kind of left out to dry. Can you help me? And you'll ask for some kind of sign. Some people will ask for more specific, some people less specific, right? Now sign is a very difficult word because it's something that points to something else, which means you already have to assume an interpretation on it, right? If a sign isn't a thing, but it points to a thing, you have to already believe in and know and assign the relationship between those two things, which means anything could be a sign or nothing could be a sign. And worse than that, it's very difficult to know when a sign is also a test. Because in the Bible, signs are fine, tests are not. If your sign is a test, you ain't getting one right? In the Bible, when the Israelites tested God, it went very, very badly for them, including the earth opening up and swallowing them at one point. In Psalm 78, which rehearses the whole history of the history of Israel, there's three different times the Israelites tested God that make it into the poem. I mean, the whole middle third of the poem is like, and then we tested God doing this, and he did some really terrible stuff to us that we kind of deserved, and then we, we tested him again. And basically he's like, we did it three times. Three times. If you do something three times, you're not learning. Do you understand? You're not learning if you do it. If you do it once, okay. If you do it twice, you are not fast, but maybe you're not dumb. You do it three times, you're not learning. You understand? And you see, well, you're usually like, well, sometimes I've asked God for a sign, but it's not a test. Really? Did it affect your faith, even your emotional faith, at all when you didn't get the sign you expected or wanted? Because if it did— It was a test. You see, if you ask for a sign and you don't get it, and there's any negative effect at all, it was a test. Because what it means is, because God didn't do what you want, it affected your relationship with him, which means you were testing him. And almost every time we ask for a sign, on a level we don't want to admit, on a level we may not even believe is there, it's a test. And when a sign, a request for a sign is also a test, it's fatherly malpractice for him to give you one. And so he's not gonna ever when it's a test. And it almost always is one. Now, if you ask for a sign and you feel like you get the sign, you're like, yes, God helped me. That's so great. And you might feel like your faith is built up and your faith is built up, but kind of Not in a super helpful way, because what's going to happen the next time you encounter doubt? You're going to ask for another sign, because that's how you do these things, right? And it creates this cycle. You keep asking for signs, and at some point God's like, what are we doing? I'm not your personal, right? And so it just keeps you in this loop. So at some point, you end up on the other side where you like don't feel like you get the sign. The only time you can ask God for a sign like every 20 minutes and get it, like every time there's a problem you ask for a sign and get it, is if you are delusionally making things into signs. Okay? At some point, you're going to realize usually the first time you ask for a sign, but very quickly thereafter in most cases, not all cases, God very graciously sometimes meets people with signs. Like maybe five times in the whole first thousand years of his relationship with men. Right? Sometimes he does. And I know people who I think he's really done that for. And that's great. But remember, it still means you have to interpret it. Which means you have to see the sign with eyes of faith, which is unlikely if you're asking for it because you're not looking with faith. Does that make sense? But in addition to that, if you don't get it, you got two options. You can either give up and be like, well, maybe there's not a God, or maybe he doesn't care about me, or maybe none of this is the way, it's, and you can, right? Which means you were testing God, which is why he didn't give you one, along with other reasons. He's not your butler, right? But the other is you can realize that, like, this isn't how you trust God. God has never invited people to trust him, this way. Sometimes he does things as signs for people. But this is not, the, what he does is he tells people the truth. And he forms a relationship with them and he tells those people to trust him. And he says that the, what happens between them will not look like sign effect, sign effect. It's a long-term process of relationship which is, w- the term he gives to it is blessing. We go through a long-term obedience that the Bible calls faithfulness, and God does a long-term action on our behalf called blessing, but you can never fully equate the two. They're, they're shy to one another, so that you can't play games with God, so that you can't ask for signs as tests, so you can't treat God like he's not God. Does that make sense? Which leads us to look more carefully than at what he said, About himself, about how he relates to people, and maybe most importantly, what he said about people, about how they deceive himself, about what he says to people. (laughs) Like the very place where we need the revelation is, how do we deceive ourselves in such a way as that we always ask for a sign, which is really a test, when what God is really calling us to do is to believe him in what He's said. Does that make sense? Okay, great. And that gets back to this idea that Jesus calls the I, which we'll get to in a minute, okay? But the point here is what Jesus is saying in this section is, it is our unwillingness to believe, not God's insufficient revelation that produces our doubts. If you think the reason you have doubts is because God has been stingy in how much he has given in self-revelation, Jesus is saying, you're wrong. And God isn't going to meet you generously in that bad attitude. Do you understand? When we have a really bad attitude towards God about something, usually God doesn't do the thing we demand. Just like you wouldn't with like a toddler or a teenager, right? Or a bully, right? Like anybody who's like trying to bully you, the number one rule is you always, you never give in, you always resist, they get nothing, right? Or when you're parenting, when your kid is rude, they get nothing. Even if they want dinner, they get nothing. You never back down to a bully, or you just encourage them to be more more terrible. Whenever anybody has a bad attitude, you don't give them what they want. No matter what. No matter how reasonable the request is. Because you're just going to make a bigger monster, right? And so when we have monstrously bad attitudes towards God, the number one thing he's required to do to love us is to not give us what we want. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's go through these. So there's three things Jesus basically says in this passage. If you, if you take all the different things he says, and you narrow it down to three basic messages it sees. One is, you aren't getting anything but the truth. Two, either your eye is going to be sincere, or it will be evil. That there's one place where all these questions come down to, and that's the place you have to see to. Right? And the third is, if you give away the inside, Everything will be clean. That shouldn't make sense yet, but it will in a few minutes. Okay. So those are the three things. Let's look at the first one. The first one is you aren't getting anything but the truth. So Jesus explicitly says, so, th- so several verses earlier, they had said, he's casting out devils by the devil, and we want a sign. And so first he answers the devil objection, and now he's answering the sign objection, but he's waited till more people have come over. That might be because this is a more common fallacy that human beings give their hearts to, right? And he says, this is a wicked generation. Now that's a very important line, because what that means is this. If you ask for a sign the way these people are asking for a sign, a sign that's essentially a test, it's not morally neutral. You see, a lot of people ask God for signs, and they think it's morally neutral. I don't really know the way forward. I have these questions. I have these doubts. I'm going to ask for a sign. Maybe God won't give me an answer to the sign, but you know, maybe he will, and who knows? Maybe it's morally neutral. And what Jesus is saying is, is, he's saying if it's this kind of sign, if there's any bit of test in it, then it's not morally neutral. It's actually an expression of wickedness. Right? And he says, and he says, listen, you're not going to get any sign but the sign of Jonah. Now you might, you might think, well that's—so they want a sign. It sounds like he's going to give them one, Nick. It doesn't sound like he's being all—he's that. He's talking tough. But it looks like he's gonna give him a sign. No. Okay, so imagine this. Let's say you're a man, and you were married for a while, and you forgot your anniversary. And you get to the end of the day of your anniversary, and your wife says to you, like you're brushing your teeth, and she's like, so did, did you forget this was our anniversary? Right? And you're a little, you're a little upset by this, and so you, you give the like, I'm gonna use feminism on my behalf answer, and you're like, look, it's our anniversary. We both got married. Right? Like, you didn't do anything for the anniversary. Why is it? Right? I didn't. Yeah. You know, she. she's like, I didn't, you know. And, did you, and so you say to her, did you get me an anniversary gift? And if your wife says back, I'll give you an anniversary gift, you're not going to get a gift. <laughs> okay? You're not about to get a, a gift. And if it, you, would, you get something, you're 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 not going to like it. Um. Right? And, and that's kind of what Jesus is doing. He's, he's like, you're not going to get a sign. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, which means you're going to get the kind of sign you don't want. You're going to get something that I count as a sign, but that you don't count as a sign because of your bad attitude. Now, now that doesn't, maybe not make entire sense because you're like, well, what the sign of Jonah, well, like everybody knows the sign of Jonah, right? Jonah was the guy who, like, got swallowed by the big fish, right? Like, he was disobeying God, and then they threw him overboard because God made this big storm, and then this big fish swallows him, right? That's not—that's pretty weird. But then the weirder part is, three days later, the fish spits him out alive on the shore. And you're like, I don't know about that, right? And that's not something we've done a lot of experimenting with, you know? So I propose that as, like, a doctoral dissertation for seminary, an Old Testament thesis, that I would, like, capture 10 or 12 people, and get them swallowed by fish, and we'll just see what happens, and that we would know if we should interpret the passage miraculously, or, or just like in, interestingly. And it was rejected. No scholarship money. Anyway, so um, so that's, that's, and so um, and in Matthew's gospel, Matthew records Jesus saying, as Jonah was in the fish three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. And you're like, that's the, that's the sign. The sign is the resurrection, right? How many of these people see the resurrection? Almost none of them. How many of the Ninevites saw Jonah get spit out by the whale? Or the fish, or the whatever, the large marine creature? None of them, Right? You just got to know some geography. It's not like, it's not like Assyria is on the Mediterranean coast. And they were all, like the Assyrians were down by the water having their crew regatta, you know? And like this fish comes under the boats and they all flip over and it spits out this guy who goes flying through the air and lands in this puff of sand. And he gets up and there's all these Assyrians with their twirly beards. And he's like, where am I? And they're like, you're Assyria. And he's like, what? What? well, I have a message for you from God. And they're like, well, you came out of a fish. This must be good. And like, then he's like, you should quit killing people. And they're like, okay, that's not what happened. (laughs) Assyria is an entirely landlocked country. That's like 600 miles from Israel, completely eastern north inland. When Jonah bought his, his boat ticket, it was for Tarshish, which is modern Gibraltar or lower Spain. So he gets on the boat. He's sailing for Spain, right? God sends a storm. He gets thrown overboard. He gets swallowed by the big fish. The fish swims him back, probably to the Israeli coast. Maybe spits him out like 20 miles from where he got on the boat. He's like in Caesarea maritime. He's like, dang, right? And then he's got to travel 600 miles or 700 miles to Nineveh, across basically desert, not ocean, until he gets to this place and then he preaches. Listen, God's going to kill all of you in 40 days. And they're like—and there's no gospel. There's no like, but you can call him Father and he'll give you the Holy Spirit. There's none of that. It's all, you're gonna die. And they're like, we're gonna die? And these are terrible people, okay? The Assyrians, they used to impale pregnant women to make a point. Okay, they would have big piles of hands. They they take over a city. If the city didn't surrender, they'd cut the hands off of everybody, let them bleed to death, make this big pile of hands so that people could like carve it into stuff because the Assyrians are fantastic. Because they didn't have a lot of soldiers because they lived in a part of the country where there weren't a lot of babies and because it was just not a there wasn't a lot of food and everything. And so they couldn't spend a lot of soldiers taking over cities. So they made up for it with brutality. And God's like, This is not gonna go, you're gonna die. Right? Here's the thing they didn't have the Bible. Right, the Jews had the Old Testament. They had all of God's laws about what you were and weren't weren't supposed to do. They had a direct written revelation of what God morally expected from people. The Assyrians did not. All they had was the voice of conscience, which can be a little quiet if you're in a horrifically terrible culture. And so God sent the Word of God to them to be said to them so that they could have a chance to believe it. So here's the thing. What's the sign of Jonah? And why the Queen of the South? Right? Who's the queen of the south? So in the Old Testament narrative books in 1 Kings chapter 10, it says the queen of Sheba came to the court of Solomon to talk to him. Now this is like, this is one of the worst anti-feminist egregious things I've ever seen. Like if you actually google queen of Sheba, it's all this like sexual hottie stuff. Like it's like they'll, they'll, they'll make some kind of brown woman laying half naked with lions, and they'll make up these salacious sexual stories because Solomon did have a lot of wives. But you know what the Bible says this woman is interested in? The truth. Okay, Sheba is like the lower western part of the Arabian Peninsula. Right? This is like Arabian desert, and it's possible that some Ethiopian tribes had taken over that area during that time. So we don't know if she's like Nubian or or Arabian. We don't really know, but here's what we know. She traveled 800 miles to talk to Solomon, because she'd heard about the greatness of his wisdom. And it said that she spent a long time just plying him with question after question, the hardest questions she could think of. And it said no question was too hard for Solomon. And that when she'd asked him everything that was in her heart, she learned the—she learned the truth. She learned wisdom. And she saw how wisdom had brought prosperity to a kingdom, and she was inspired so much by that, that that she as a ruler could rule not just with force, but with wisdom, which could lead to prosperity, which in a desert kingdom, you'd better lead with some stinking wisdom, right? And so she returned to her people and led them. She didn't become one of his wives, right? And Jesus is saying, he's saying, look, in the last day when everybody gets judged, she, this woman who you've never met, is going to stand up and she's going to condemn you to hell. Now why would Jesus say that? He says it's because she traveled from the ends of the earth to hear the truth from Solomon. What was the sign? Do you get it? What's the sign? The sign is the truth itself. The truth is its own sign. Now if you're young, you might be like, what? Listen, you get old enough and you live in a world where people just lie to each other constantly and you get hurt enough by enough people lying to you and taking advantage of you, and you see how rare it is that a person, any person, tells the truth every time they open their mouth and tells the truth with every action of their body, you will realize that that is just about a self-authenticating miracle. And you will realize that the seed of your belief— lies in your conscience, your capacity to recognize what is right and good and true. And what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, listen, the sign of Jonah and the condemning sign of the Queen of Sheba is that both of them, Jonah preached the truth, and these horrifically evil Ninevites believed it. They repented. And therefore, they were saved. And the Queen of Sheba came from 800 miles away because she wanted the truth. She was willing to travel and to risk her life so that she could talk to a person she had heard might know the truth. And she came at whatever cost and she gave enormous gifts so that she could hear the truth. And he said, these people will stand up on the last days. And listen, the Assyrians were horrific Murderers And Jesus is saying these murderers, these people who have impaled and killed, cut off hands, dismembered people, will stand righteous on the last day, and they'll look at you and your entitled unbelief, and they will say, you are going to hell, and they'll be right. Do you see that inverse? Like we think, no, no, the impaling murderers, they're, they're probably going to hell. Like I have a little bit of doubt. Um, God should understand that. Do you see how crazy this thing Jesus is saying is? He's saying, no, no, no. When they, that they heard the truth, they believed it. When you hear the truth, you refuse to. That's the difference. That's the only one that will matter in the end. Because of the atonement of Jesus. Because Jesus dies for all sin. All sin. The only sin that condemns is the unrepented of sin, the unforgiven sin. And so the most damning thing in the world is entitled unbelief. It's actually the only thing that's damning in the whole world. And so what Jesus then basically says is, he's like, okay, listen, therefore, everything comes down to your perception of the truth and your willingness to believe it. And the problem with you receiving the truth actually isn't that you don't have access to it or that the world is too confusing. The fundamental problem we all have is actually a moral problem. Now think about that. That's very helpful, because if, if all of your confusion is just bound up in the confusion of your own mind, there, it's very difficult to think how you might be able to sort that out. But if the problem, one of the things that's creating all of that confusion is a moral problem, right, that's very different because you can, you can let that go. You can repent of it. And then you can bring clarity into that place, and that clarity can begin to work its way out. And so Jesus uses—and and this paragraph is, is admittedly a very difficult paragraph. And I think that what you should do with difficult paragraphs in the Bible is to read them over and over and over and think about them over and over and over and, over and assume that the thing that's difficult about them is their poetry, is their interrelationship, and if you can tease it out, you will find great things in it. It's an incredibly revelatory paragraph, and it, but it will only reveal itself to those Who believe in it enough to look at it and look at it and look at it until it gives itself to you. Right? And what Jesus says is this, just like you would take a lamp and you'd light it and you would put it in a room, and there's lots of things in the room, and they're all lit because you have this lamp in the room. Everything gets light because the lamp is lit. Your eye functions similarly. Okay? Now, it's a different kind of light in that Your eye receives the light to see, and the lamp produces the illumination. But it's—he's crossing over the metaphor there with light, right? So your eye perceives everything. So I can walk across the stage, and I can walk around and not hit stuff. And my whole—I'm using all the different parts of my body. But the reason why I can move and not hit everything is because—because of my sight. Because I can see what's there, I can order all of my body to to function— Rightly with my environment. Does that make sense? And what Jesus is saying is he's saying your internal consciousness, your, your conscience, and the way you see everything in the world, what you would call your mind or your heart, your soul, that inner place that's you, that place has to be single and sincere in relationship to the truth and to God. And the great war of, the hu- of human existence is to fill it instead with self-centeredness, which produces greed, which always leads to dishonesty. That's a great— and that's the thing Jesus says you have to see about, right? Like, in, in the gospel, Jesus does everything for you, right? Like, it's almost blasphemy to say that you do anything, right? But this is what he says. He says, verse 35, see to it then. Who's, who's supposed to see to it? You're supposed to see to it. You are. You can't save yourself. You can't—none of us can make up for all the things that we've done. None of us can, can clear our moral ledger. None of us can do any of that stuff. You are responsible for your own consciousness. You are responsible for your own conscience. That doesn't mean God doesn't help you. It says all through the Bible, God still helps you with all that. God convicts you and leads you and helps you see and gives you faith. But ultimately, you you have to take responsibility, right? There are things that you have to take responsibility for that that you don't have complete control over. You have to take responsibility for your consciousness and your conscience. And the main responsibility is this, is that it would be single. That it is 100% sincere. There is not a single internal sentence or sentiment of insincerity in your soul at all, anywhere. Okay, that should be really depressing. (laughs) If if that doesn't terrify you, you are not in touch with yourself at all. Okay, now in the in the NIV Bible, the one we have with us here, the, the words are translated, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is unhealthy, then you'll be full of darkness. Sometimes it's hard to translate in ways that people understand stuff. The older NIV just said good. Good is a decent translation. It's incredibly vague. More literally what the words are, are single or simple and evil. Your eye either has to be simple, that is single or sincere, or it will be evil. The only way for a human being to be godly, to walk in what the Bible calls righteousness through faith, is for it to be governed by one thing— The minute a human being's internal soul becomes composite, there's more than one thing. It's toast. It's single or evil. Those are the only human options there are based on our existence. Because it's either, if it's Jesus in the flesh, it's like it's going to be the flesh, man. Like it's got to be one thing that reigns absolute. And that's Jesus. And Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. And the truth, what's true, has to reign entirely in the human heart. And so you cannot allow. You cannot make peace with any even small internal dishonesties about what's really going on in the world, what's really going on in your life, because if you do, it will darken your eye, and then all kinds of other dishonesties eke their way in, and they start reshaping your conception of everything, and your perception of everything. And before you know it, like, you can be completely wrong in arguments, and you think the other person is a jack behind, and like, you can, I mean, you just, you have, your perception gets more and more foggy, more and more lost, and what it allows for is more and more wickedness, and what Jesus calls in this next passage, greed. I have to finish this up kind of quick, but in the third section, he goes after all these religious people, right? Which is, which is great, because he talks about unbelief, and then he goes after all the believers, which is exactly how we should think about ourselves. That when Jesus talks about unbelief, we should say, oh, that's me. Me, Christian, that's me, probably, because I'm a human. And so he goes after these religious teachers and he says, listen, your faith is just a facsimile. Right? You've just, you've created this external thing that looks like it's sort of supposed to, but inside you're full of deadness, greed, wickedness. Right? He says you're like, you're like tombs that people have like paved over. And so they walk over it like it's a street, like it should be, but underneath it is dead people rotting. Right? That's what he's he's saying they are. They're It's like, it's like a pot that, what we're supposed to be is like a camp pot. You know what camp pots are like when you cook over, over uh, a fire? The outside gets turned like black. It's kind of disgusting, but it doesn't matter. The food's on the inside. And so you can make your coffee and you put the water on the inside and you burn it on the outside, and there's all kinds of layers of like ugly blackness on the outside, and then you pour out the crystal clear water that's really hot and you make your coffee. And nobody's like, are you gonna drink out of that? Nobody says that because the dirt's on the outside but you can have a perfectly clean pot with a bunch of disgusting stuff on the inside, and nobody wants to make coffee with that. And the God who owns the outside created the inside as well, Jesus says. And then he says this very strange thing. Did you notice the, the awkward hyphen in verse 41? Where it says, but now, as for what is inside you, hyphen, when you don't know what else to do, right? A hyphen. <laughs> Be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. What in God's name, literally, God's name, does that mean? Because like the first impulse is to say, well, we should give to the poor. Okay, now this is partly about the poor, because part, w- part of what's going wrong is these people are not treating the poor well, but they're taking all the benefits of their authority, and they're not using their authority according to the responsibility to give the poor what they require. Now that's there, but it's, it's actually about more than that. It's about everything. It's about everything. It's about the fact that if you don't give everything that is inside of you, if you retain for yourself a space for yourself to define it for yourself, you're gonna die. The only way to live is to give it—give everything in the inside away give it all, like it's alms. Like, there, like there's that, ho- that homeless guy that you don't like that looks at your, life, your wife weird down on State Street. It's like taking all of your money and like putting it in his like thing. It's it's that reckless a kind of behavior. It's the it's the idea that you have to give over everything. Everything that's inside of you, give it all to the poor. Right? That's that's a metaphor. Do you understand? It's, that's not literal. You're not supposed to excrete things on them. It, what he means is, is that and the literal word is alms. It's like to charity, to like charitably, like that it goes out to good. He's like, take everything that's inside you and let it go out to good. Let yourself be entirely self-forgetful and therefore unselfish. And if you do that, if you accept the truth, if your eye is true, simple and sincere, and if you give all that's inside out self-forgetfully to others by means of the truth, everything will be clean. Your behaviors will be fine. The things that you choose, your choices, the way your heart functions. It'll be clean. It'll be, it'll be fine. But, but the only way the human heart can be free, the only way that it can, can receive God as its father, the only way that it can become the dwelling it can be for the Holy Spirit, the only way that it will really pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven the only way that it can, it can do that, the only way that can happen, the only way it cannot demand signs is that if it accepts that the sign of God is his truth spoken. That we must believe. Believing and taking God at his word and seeing that is the truth, that that truth makes our eye single and orders everything in our life into sincerity toward God and his truth so that there's a oneness and, and integrity inside of us so that we're full of that light rather than darkness. And then if we take everything that's inside us, so we don't keep it for ourselves in greed, but we pour it out towards what God loves and cares about, only then can we live in faith. Only then can we live according to the truth. And only then are we really gonna walk with Jesus. And only then can our attitude really be changed. It's the only way you'll ever have a good attitude about life, and about yourself, and about others, and about the world you live in, is if you take God at his word, you let that become the single sincere truth that's guiding you, that pushes out all the self-made falsehoods. And then you take that which—that sincere place that God has given you inside, and you pour it out self-forgetfully for others. In faith in Christ, you'll be free. You'll be full of the Holy Spirit, and you'll delight in calling God your Father. And your life will have all kinds of doubts that won't really bother you that much. And you can walk every single day with your Father in heaven, according to his kingdom, enjoying and keeping in step with his Spirit. One of the, the acts of that is the Lord's Supper that we do together as believers, where you take— we, we have to keep coming back to this ritual where we say, yes, right, this is your truth, God, the gospel the death and resurrection of Jesus. Where am I insincere in accepting him as the truth? And how do I receive him and give him away to others? And so in this ritual, we declare the death of Jesus, his broken body and his shed blood, and we declare that we believe in it, and that we ask God to nourish us in the truths of the gospel. And so the band is going to play, and we're going to have, we're going to have you come up and receive the communion yourself. So you'll come up, and you'll take bread, and you'll take the cup, and you'll go back to your seat, and then you'll take it when you're ready. Does that make sense? When you do so, you should remember that the bread, Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me and of the, of the cup which represented his blood. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many to take away sins. Do it in remembrance of me and allow that to be so complete in you that it is, a, it is your one thing. And see what God does in your heart if you allow your eye to be single. Let's pray. God, as we, as we come to this, and as we receive these, um, help us as we take these things and we reflect by ourselves this morning. Are there ways in which our heart isn't single towards you? Are there other things crowding in? Are there ways in which the, the light of our eyes, we think it's the light of the truth, but there's so many other things that's not single, and so you've said if it's not single, it is darkness. Will you help us shave away those things and believe you in such a way that we can get our eyes back to a simple clarity, in you, and show us what it would mean to give ourselves away self-forgetfully. We don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be people of love
0: and faith and truth. We pray that you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen.